Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Folklorist Jens Lund recently gave the 2016 Fife Honor Lecture at USU, presented by the USU Folklore Program and the USU Department of English. His lecture was titled, I'd Done What I Could, Occupational Folk Poetry in the Pacific Northwest. Lund says that the dangers and difficulties of certain occupations are sometimes expressed in the tradition of composing and reciting poems, often in the traditional ballad form of rhymed couplets. This tradition is best known in the cowboy poetry of the American West. It also occurs among such groups as fishermen and loggers and seems to survive to a greater extent in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to explore the tradition of fishing and logging poetry, and we'll hear some poems. We'll talk about poetry and masculinity, and we'll uh, review some of the history of poetry gatherings. Jens Lund was there at the beginnings of the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada. Jens Lund was born in Denmark, grew up in suburban Stanford, Connecticut, He holds a Ph.D. in Folklore and American Studies from Indiana University, an M.A. in American Studies from Bowling Green State University. He's worked as a freelance field researcher in folklore and oral history in 23 states, and he's taught at five universities. He was director of Washington State Folklife Council and developed and managed Washington State Parks and Recreation Commission's Folk and Traditional Arts Program in the uh, Arts in the Parks Program, from which he retired in 2014. He's the author of Folk Arts of Washington State and Flatheads and Spoonies, and numerous articles and reviews, and he's worked extensively in cultural tourism. He developed Washington's first highway audio heritage tours. He lives in Olympia, Washington. Jens Lund uh, came into our studios for conversation when he was uh, at USU for the Fife Honor Lecture. So the uh, the title of the uh, Fife Folklore uh, Lecture is I'd Done What I Could, Occupational Folk Poetry in the Pacific uh, Northwest. So uh, usually occupational folk poetry, I guess the most famous example would be cowboy poetry. That yes, pe- The people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kinds of occupations are you talking about here? Well, there, there are, there's occupational poets in a lot of uh, occupations. I've, you know, I've come across a mortician and an attorney and teachers, policemen, firemen. But the two I'm going to talk about here that are very specific to the Northwest are, are um, uh, fishers, commercial fishers, that is, uh, and, and loggers. Hmm. Uh, fishers and loggers. So you're in the Northwest. Yes. So this is, these would be uh, two, I guess, fairly common occupations? Or? Well, they were common at one time. Mm-hmm. They're okay. less less so now, but you could say they're kind of legacy or heritage occupations. Okay. Yeah, and that's that interesting. Yeah, they very much go back to, they go back quite a ways, and, and, and those who still uh, practice them very much identify with the occupation as a way of life, not just uh, a way of bringing home a paycheck. Yeah, because some of them are the cowboys. I mean, you know, fewer yes. fewer cowboys. It's more in memory. It's more in culture. It's more in mm-hmm. uh, you know heritage, as you say. Indeed. Uh, so, so maybe we can uh, break those out. Uh, so, t- talk about loggers first. Um, what, what sorts of uh, this would get us into general? What what do people in occupations want to put out there when they start doing poetry about their occupation? Well, um, I think with both loggers and and fishermen or fishers, you know, some some prefer, including some of the women, prefer fishermen still to fishers. Um, the there's there are a number of different things that they emphasize. Um, there's the the danger. The, the the love of the work itself, the love of the environment of the work, you know, being outdoors, the the identification with a, a long heritage, um, 
the the sometimes in terms of the danger, sometimes it really gets into real fear and terror. And then at other times, uh, you get humor and, and, and irony. And, and really, there's a lot of the same for both of those occupations. It's really the same, the same kinds of things, you know, the, the, the danger, the love of the environment, and the esoteric knowledge, the specific skills, uh, the words referring to particular items of clothing, uh, referring to uh, uh, the tools of the trade, referring to the, the specific skills that, 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 that you need to have in order to, uh, in order to do this. And then there's uh, a lot of times there's uh, humor about somebody being a greenhorn and not, mm. not, knowing, the, uh, not, not knowing these things yet and, and how they learn these things. Mm. So those are, those are some of the major skills that are, are some of the major the topics that are found in both of those. And you find them in, 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 in cowboy poetry too. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I, th- I think we know that uh, it's in their popular conception that logging is dangerous. You know, you, you've got you know, yes. if it doesn't work right, the guy at the top of the tree, the tree falls and you know he's injured or or dead. Tree falls on you, et cetera, et cetera. That's yes, a lot of danger there. Uh, fishing also dangerous, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, you run into all kinds of weather. Um, there's uh, Machinery on on you know uh, aboard the boats that uh, can do a lot of damage if you happen to get in the way of uh, when a net is swinging over or a, or or a, a crab pot or any of those kinds of things. There's the one of the one of the poems that we're going to be talking about during my lecture is about a uh, an engine room explosion that puts uh, uh, three guys uh, afloat on the Bering Sea in winter during a blinding blizzard in an overturned raft. Uh, with no food or water and just a wet coat between them. And it's a true story. It's a first-person narrative. Uh, one thing which I allude to, although out of respect for its author, I never would read it, or is, is a, 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 a dramatic narrative, true story, told in the first person of how he watched his father and his son drown off mm. Kodiak Island after a boating mishap. So uh, yeah, I think there's probably as much danger in uh, in in each of those. I know that during the, I think it was during the Vietnam War, somebody put out a book about loggers. I said it was more dangerous. You were more more likely to get killed in in the in the working in the woods than you were uh, you know being stationed in Vietnam during the war. Wow, wow. So the book was called More Dangerous Than War. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the, the shrinking number of people involved in these occupations. Yes. But still, people who fish, obviously, and and who log. Right in 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 the Northwest, uh, the 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 Washington and Oregon coasts and the Columbia River estuary were once intensely fished, and as those fisheries have declined, uh, a lot of the people who've continued fishing uh, now motor up to Alaska every season and fish in Alaska waters. And the other thing that has happened is that because of those more opportunities in Alaska waters. Um, there are a lot of seasonal fishers now, people who have uh, college students and also school teachers in particular who have the summers off and who can now go up there and, and, uh, and fish during the summer. And it's possible, uh, if you're lucky, uh, to make a substantial amount of money in one season if you're lucky. And if it's a good season and the fish prices are high and so on, kind of like farming in that uh, – in that, uh, yeah, you might have a good crop, but if the prices are real low, that's just too bad. Mm. So, uh, so there are there is that opportunity as as well, and that has attracted more people. There are now women um, 
who are in, in the uh, commercial fishing business. Uh, they first started out in, as, as, as cooks and eventually uh, became uh, owner skippers. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's relatively new. The, um, the change in, in acceptance of women in non-traditional occupations, uh, the greater mechanization of, uh, of, of, of fishing, uh, fishing boat uh, machinery and equipment, thus making it less important to have enormous upper body strength. Uh, those are, are some of the things that really have um, have have you know brought more more women into the into the uh, into the, the trade. So uh, with these changes, has the has the culture changed in those in those occupations? I think it has to some extent. I think um, among well, also among in in logging in in the old days, um, in the days of high lead logging, there, you, you needed a large crew to haul uh, to get the trees down and get them yarded, in other words, collected together, and then getting them loaded onto, onto railroad cars or trucks and out of the woods. And uh, that was especially the case when a lot of the logging was of very large old-growth trees. But nowadays, um, most of the logging is of, if, of, almost all the logging is of, of second or third growth trees, which are not nearly as big. And we have machinery that can make it possible for two uh, loggers to do the work that uh, that that twenty had to do a generation ago, and that that has as much to do with the decline of the logging trade as environmental protection. You know, that has as much to do as the as as the fact that we've locked up quite a bit of uh, of the forest, and of course, locking up the forest has has resource has also caused a decline in in logging, and people who live in timber communities have had to leave either leave them or find some other uh, line of work that they could still do out there. Hmm. I wonder if you could give, a, give me an example, read, read a poem, uh, part of a poem. Um, uh, yeah, well, here's, here's, for a, me. here's an give example. Give us a taste of this. Here's an example. Um, uh, this is a, a fragment of a, of a logging poem, which we'll be talking about during the lecture. Um, it's by a, well, he's deceased now, by a gentleman from, um, well, he, he he's originally from, Oregon, but when I met him, he was retired, living in Washington, and uh, it's a poem he wrote called "The Tramp Logger," which is which refers to uh, a lot of these things. Uh, refers to pride and work, pride and work history, physical hardship, uh, and it's also nostalgic because when he wrote it, it's called "The Tramp Logger," and when he wrote it, the the, the logging camp lifestyle and the itinerant logger who went from logging camp to logging camp had almost completely vanished. And and the, but it still also expresses the keen sense of adventure. It refers to uh, the 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 uh, occupational jargon. It talks about corks, which are caulked boots, um, and and stagging, which is a cutting cutting trousers short to keep them from tangling in the brush. So here's a little here's a little bit of the the tramp logger as written by uh, by Otto Oya. In the great Northwest, I've logged with the best and camped with the bad ones, too. Why anyone stayed with the logging trade, I don't think anyone knew. Soaked with rain and racked with pain, I dragged to the bunkhouse door, then jump like hell for the morning bell and head for the woods once more. Wear your corks with pride, boy, and stagger our pants legs high. We have not logged at all, boy. There's more for you to try. And when the skies turn blue and the sun shines, too, and the snow is melting back... I log them to blow, hit the roads I know, and leave my winter's shack. So uh, that's you know that's that's 
pretty typical of a lot of the poems that were, uh, at least the ones that were written in the late 20th century. Almost all, well, I'd say all the logging poems that I'm familiar with are 20th century, not 21st century. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, the um, tradition of reciting logging poems had largely died out, in fact, by the time that I got involved with it in the, in the mid-1980s. But uh, logging industry publications such as Log Trucker and Logger's World, were, were still publishing uh, poems. And that petered out in, in the 90s. Mm. Whereas at the same time, the opposite was happening, happening with Fisher poets. And uh, there were, I guess there probably always were uh, Fisher and maritime poets. But uh, the, I remember hearing about people who were, I think because of the fact that there were these long periods of slack time as you motored from the Oregon coast up to Alaska. And even when you got there, sometimes the fisheries authorities had open days and closed days. So you had a lot of idle time. And there were people who uh, who um, entertained their, well, other fishers and themselves by reciting over the VHF, uh, maritime band uh, VHF um uh, radio, and in um, I think it was 19, yeah, 1998, one of the school teacher uh, fishers uh, who taught creative writing at a school in Oregon took his class, his creative writing class, to Elko to the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering, and after that decided that well there are enough people who write poems and uh, write songs about our trade, you know, right in our trade here, that we need to do something like that here, and so they established the first. Um, Fisher Poets Gathering in uh, Astoria, Oregon, and that's been going on every February ever since. It's a, it's a month later than the Cowboy Poetry Gathering. It's the last weekend in February. And they have really, they've grown. I mean, they grew, grew from a one venue, um, you know, Friday and Saturday night, now to three nights and also a Sunday morning and six venues at, at a time. So they have really grown and they've also attracted poets from Florida and Hawaii and well there are always a few from Alaska right from the start but uh, uh, you know even you know from New England in fact one of the poems even though this is primarily about Northwest uh, uh, poetry one of the poems that I'm going to um, read some parts of is, is was written by a, a fellow from Rhode Island hmm. so uh, so there you have a growth in the in the uh, recitation tradition because of the fact that uh, that this event in Astoria, which is, of course, now touted by the Astoria Chamber of Commerce and Tourism Board and so on, and brings people in, just as has happened in Elko, that has grown, whereas the uh, lager uh, recitation uh, tradition really died. I um, did my best to try to revive it a little bit in the uh, late 80s and early 90s by organizing some lager poet uh, gatherings at a few of the timber festivals out in the uh, Northwest, and also having some events associated with folk festivals uh, in, 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 you know, in Seattle, uh, in which people recited uh, poems about, uh, about working in the woods. And most of those uh, poets, all but one that I can think of, uh, are deceased now. Hmm. Um, there's one fellow who lives in Wasilla, Alaska, who still uh, still does it, and uh, I don't know that he writes much anymore, but he certainly recites and writes and sings songs about it. Hmm. 
What do you what do you think this first of all for the the, the uh, logging poetry? Why do you think that essentially died out by the time you well you got to it? Well, one of the, one of the I, I don't really know. I've only speculated. It, there just didn't seem to be an interest in it among some of the younger uh, loggers, and um, you know the lifestyle of the the uh, single man who uh, went off and worked in the logging camp, and who you know it, the the whole tradition of occupational poetry has a lot to do with the fact that uh, going all the way back, and this is, of course, the case with cowboy poetry, too, uh, and mining poetry, that people lived in isolation and had to make their own entertainment. So if there was a guy who had, uh, a, uh, you know, a faculty for uh, for writing songs or writing, or writing poems and reciting poems or reciting others' poems or whatever and telling stories— you know, a camp bard was what they were sometimes called in the logging camps, then that person would be the entertainment. But by the time logging really got going uh, in the Pacific Northwest, there was already the radio and the phonograph, and and it was easier to get to town and so on. Uh, So I think that probably has, uh, has something to do with it. There is a stigma associated with poetry that is somehow or other uh, effeminate and uh, unmanly. And I know that even in the, in the early days of the cowboy poetry gathering, it was kind of a, uh, a stigma that had to be overcome. And it was one that we had to overcome with the, um, the, the, the logger poet gatherings that we had. But uh, for some reason, the, the Fisher poets have never had to deal with that, evidently, because mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. I've talked to people about that and said, what? You know, that's not the case with us. And, yeah. uh, and um, so I think that might have something to do with it. Because I remember there were a few um, uh, logging festivals or logging shows that had a cowboy poet. They would hire a cowboy poet to come and do cowboy poetry. And I remember asking people, well, don't you want a logger poet? Well, why, would we, well, why would we want that? You know, there was, so there, there was kind of a, a disconnect there, that that in 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 the popular conception of of, of it that probably contributed to it mm. somewhat. On the other hand, the events that we put on, and after I organized a few, um, the um, I believe it was yeah the Cowlitz County Historical Society, which is in southwestern Washington, organized a few uh, logger poet uh, uh, tree recitals, um, and they they grew. Drew big turn away crowds, mm-hmm. and uh, but then, you know, as I said, most of the uh, reciters were were old guys, and yeah. uh, and if they didn't get if they didn't die, they certainly got more infirm and weren't able to come out and do that kind of mm-hmm. thing. We're talking with uh, folklorist Jens Lund. He recently gave the 2016 Fife Honor Lecture at USU. Fife Honor Lecture is an honorary lecture given every year at USU in honor of Austin and Alta Fife, folklorists, documentarians, and founders of the Fife Folklore Archives. It's presented by the USU Folklore Program and USU Department of English. And uh, Jens Lund's lecture was titled, I'd Done What I Could, Occupational Folk Poetry in the Pacific Northwest. And we'll continue this discussion following a break. Kudos to Utah Public Radio's Jennifer Pemberton, known for her award-winning series, Year of Water, and most recently, Western Women in Politics, for her upcoming work with Alaska's Energy Desk. She will be working out of the Juno office at KTOO Public Media in November. UPR thanks Jennifer Pemberton and wishes her well in her new adventures in Alaska. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Folklorist Jens Lund recently gave the 2016 Fife Honor Lecture at USU, presented by the USU Folklore Department, our program, and the USU Department of English. His lecture was titled, I Done What I Could, Occupational Folk Poetry in the Pacific Northwest. Jens Lund says that the dangers and difficulties of certain occupations are sometimes expressed in the tradition of composing and reciting poems, often in the traditional ballad form of rhymed couplets. This tradition is best known in the cowboy poetry of the American West. It also occurs among such groups as fishermen and loggers. It seems to survive to a greater extent in the Pacific Northwest. And we're exploring the tradition of fishing and logging poetry. We're hearing some poems. We have been talking, continue to talk about poetry and masculinity. And uh, we'll review some of the history of poetry gatherings. Jens Lund was there at the beginning of the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada. We continue our discussion now with folklorist Jens Lund. So you mentioned uh, before I go to, to the fishing poetry, and that, that seems to have gone in the opposite direction. It seems mm-hmm. to have gotten yes. stronger. Um, uh, the cowboy poetry, I hadn't thought, hadn't thought about that, but I guess they had to overcome a stigma. You know, this manly profession, right? And so you know, poetry well, is not considered manly, but but cowboy poetry took off. Right. Well, they the, the cowboy poets themselves, I don't think they were having to deal, and the people in ranching who were familiar with cowboy poetry, they didn't have to overcome that stigma but because they were already, you know, realizing what they were doing and in, in, in the context in which it was happening. But to the larger society, I remember, because I was involved in the very earliest, organizing the very earliest uh, cowboy poetry gathering. I, I was involved in getting some folks from the state of Washington to come to Elko. And I remember... You know, it being on TV, I remember, I think it was the Johnny Carson show, they had a couple of the cowboy poets, and there was there was a lot of media attention, and the media um, kind of emphasized that. And I, I know I remember talking about it to several people, including my own dad, and, you know, well, poetry is not something that kind of sissy stuff, you know, so, um, although obviously if you listen to it, it's, it's not necessarily. But then uh, the other thing that's interesting that kind of goes against that and this is based on some conversations I had with some of the logger poets. Um, the older the older folks, which as I said, is pretty much all of them, they went to school, went to public school at a time when uh, recite, l- l- or learning poems by heart and then being able to recite them back was an important part of uh, of your education in you know in public school. And there were a few of them who really excelled at that and enjoyed it and would all the way in their childhood make up often bawdy or scatological poems and recite them for their mates. And then, of course, when they ended up in the logging camps, uh, they could continue to do that. Gary Snyder, who is uh, known as an in, as a, well, one of the beat poets and an environmentalist mm-hmm. poet and so on, he, in an interview on that I heard uh, on NPR way back in 1990, he talked about he worked in some logging camps on the in the Olympic Peninsula as a young man, and he remembered hearing um, loggers who recited poetry. And as a result, he that that he claims that is what inspired him to take up the pen and try and do it himself. So, uh, so those are you know kind of contrasting or contradictory uh, directions, but nonetheless. Uh, uh, and I suppose the fact that you were reciting, and uh, I'm, I'm speculating now, I suppose the fact that you were reciting something a little bit bawdy or scatological to your, your buddies, uh, that was different than reciting, say, uh, something from uh, 
uh, you know, something from English literature mm-hmm. that you were expected to do by your, your English teacher. Mm-hmm. So there, there'd be some uh, norms, right, that you're, you're, right, you're trying exactly. to either flout or, or confirm. Oh, just an aside, you, you were there at the earliest uh, Elko yes. Yes, gatherings. What, uh, compare and contrast that to, to today. Today it's a big going concern. Yeah. Oh, uh, how yes. was it at the beginning? Well, it was small and it mm-hmm. was intimate. And uh, I would say um, it's it's still um, still tribal in the sense that although there are a lot of outsiders who come to it, there's a core of people who pretty much wear the same kind of hats and the mm-hmm. same kind of clothes and know each other and so on. But the first one, other than the media that came there, which is in sort of, oh, look at this. You know, this is kind of a freak show, isn't it? Uh, a- apart from them, it was a small, intimate gathering of ranching people who already – either recited or were family members of it or were people who really enjoyed uh, cowboy poetry. I think the first gathering had uh, probably, if if it had a thousand people, that was about all. And I don't know how many they get, you know, they get now. I mean, they really get a large, Mm. draw a very large crowd. Mm -hmm. And it has become part of uh, Elko's, uh, you know, uh, image to the tourists, you know, I, I, yeah. they have on the water tower, you know, painted uh, home of cowboy poetry, you know. Yeah. So, um, so, in, so it has really, uh, it has, has really, really expanded. But what has also happened is as the cowboy poets have grown older and as younger ranching people have gotten less interested in it, it has also, it expanded really large and now it's starting to contract again. Oh. And the other reason for that is the change in the economy in a lot of the ranching areas, uh, well, Nevada, for instance, we're mi- in Wyoming, where mining is now much more important than ranching, and the people who could maybe make $15,000 a year as a cowboy can make $80,000 or $100,000 a year operating heavy equipment in the mine. And so now the um, ranchers have started hiring people from Mexico to come and be their ranch hands. And you know people who have who are very skilled. In fact, one rancher told me that uh, well, a good Mexican uh, uh, vaquero can do the work of three uh, Anglo cowboys. So mm. there's that. There's been that change too. And as a result, the younger men going into cowboying uh, is often you know there it just doesn't happen that much. But you still get ranch families, you know, members of ranch families um, who still practice it. But it's mm. not. It, I, I've definitely seen it expand, and then I've also seen it contract. What are you looking to the future? It's, I mean, it's become, you know, institutionalized. It was, it was sort of a freak show at first. It's, yep. be, it's become a thing in the popular consciousness. Is right. it in danger on the ground of uh, disappearing? Are there younger people coming into cowboy poetry? There are some, but not enough. I don't think. I don't think there are enough. And uh, I, I, it's not so much that there aren't probably going to be some people who do that. But I think that the success and sustainability of the gathering itself could, in the long run, be hmm. be um, um, endangered by hmm. by by that. And I suppose it could make a transition if you have more and more uh, Mexican immigrants coming in. Uh, yeah, maybe it makes a transition to corridos or you know yes. something something yes. for and, Mexican. And there culture. are there are hmm. there are such, but then hmm. you have to have, then you're dealing with a language barrier, hmm. and and there has been some attempt to. To, to bring that into the gathering. The, one of the things that I've always liked about the gathering, and I, I, I've gone to a number of them, is that there's always been an international component. 
you know, they've not always, but in more recent years, certainly in the beginning, but in more recent years, they've brought in uh, um, people who work with cattle from, you know, from Mongolia, from Kyrgyzstan, from from France, from the British Isles, uh, you know, from a number of different, uh, you know, different places. And um, I don't know that they're going to be able to afford to do that uh, in the future, again, because of, uh, and, and certainly from Mexico. The last one I was at, which was... Uh, Actually, the one this year, um, in, in, no, not the one this year, the one the previous year in 2015, there was uh, uh, a number of people from uh, from southern, uh, from Baja California Sur, who were who were there, but they more featured their musical, you know, their songs, their sung corridos, mm-hmm. rather than recited um, recited material. Again, mm-hmm. because that's something that 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 you can enjoy even mm-hmm. if you can't uh, understand uh, the words of it. Right. Well, uh, why don't we hear another, uh, set this up. Uh, we're going to hear a recording of, uh, of a poem uh, told in the voice of the, the poet, right? Yes. The poet himself. Uh, tell us about this. Yes. Well, this, is, uh, this poem actually uh, has a bit of history with me in that it was the first uh, Fisher poem that I ever heard. Uh, I had a friend who actually was a poet, too. He was a, a farmer in eastern Washington who, when farming got bigger and they ended up leasing their land instead of farming it themselves he moved to western washington and ended up living uh you know near the mouth of the columbia and he got to know some other people who were interested in poetry and one of them was this gentleman uh, wesley gino leach going by gino leach and uh, gino is probably the most skilled of all the reciters and he is his poetry is also quite good in this uh in this uh, particular genre and uh, it was, uh, I heard about Gino and happened to, went down there and met him. And he recited a few things for me and gave me some copies of his poems. And the one that he gave me, which was, uh, you know, one of his early poems, I still think it's possibly his best or one of his best, is one called A Viking Funeral. And it's, uh, again, it's a tale of, uh, of tragedy and it's a tale of uh, somebody, uh, you know, somebody being f- more or less forced out of the trade by uh, circumstances beyond his control. And uh, without revealing the whole story, since you're going to play it, that's really what it's about. And uh, it's, it's from that poem that I drew the title of my, my uh, talk. You know, I'd done what I could and I did all I can. Mm. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the last line. Which it says... Uh, I've gone to Valhalla, I've gone like a man. I'd done what I could, and I did what I can. Well, this guy was all cargo, not flotsam or jetsam. Stood six football four in his gurried Ballard Stetson. He wore a gray filson jacket and black Frisco jeans. They were splattered all over with Norwegian green. Well, he hiked his bulk upon a stool. I tossed a coaster down. He threw down a hundred said... By the house around. I rang the bell, up went a yell from a crowd of waterfront rats. Their ship had come in. They wore beer grins and slapped each other on the back. Well, this guy was big. You know the kind. They fill up a door. He smelled like diesel fuel and stank of albacore. His face was brown as running rust. Had hands like coffee cans. His wrists were like vine maple. He said, I'll have myself a hams. Well, after three beers, he got up to 
jukebox was howling some old Hank Williams. Then through a screen of cigarette smoke, Kodiak Chris leaned over and gave me this dope. He said, I fished with that guy. He had a death wish. He fished like a drunk and drank like a fish. He's from Eureka as a slab called Blue Star, and he blows every dime in a Vista Del Mar. Well, the big guy came back from pumping his bills. He bought round after round with a fistful of bills. The stiffs were ecstatic. God, what a racket when he fit them all out in green tavern jackets. Well, there's an hour to go before last call. He said, I'm going next door for some real alcohol. See, I drink beer for bulk and whiskey for blast. I'm going over to Red's and get drunk on my ass. He said, by the way, I got a plan. When I go out, I'm going out like a man. I ain't using no gun. I ain't using no rope. See, tuna's my game, and the bank wants my boat. Well, I just stood there. Hell, I didn't know what to think. Yeah, I let it slide. It had too much to drink. Well, next night at the tavern, I talked to old Pops. He worked pumping diesel at the Union Fuel Dock. He said, remember that big guy that bought us all jackets? That guy from Eureka that created a racket? Well, he come in with Blue Star drunk in his ass. And got underway with two drums of gas. Well, one week later, the story came out. I got it from Larry, who'd run up from down south. The ocean was flat. They were onto the fish. They're all close to having plugged tuna trips. Well, here come Blue Star with one busted pole. Figured the big guy had been on a roll. He ran past the midnight. He ran past the king. He ran past the Trojan and past the Doreen. He kept on a running way out to the west. Blue Star disappeared into a red-orange sunset. Well, out on the horizon, they saw a bright light. It glowed for hours well into the night. At daybreak, they found her, but they weren't in time. Blue Star had burned to her waterline. Well, all they found was a note and a quart bottle of hams, and here's what was printed in a block-lettered hand. I'm gone to Valhalla. I went like a man. I'd done what I could. I did all I can. That was a Viking funeral by Wesley Gino Leach, performed by the poet himself. We're talking with folklorist Jens Lund. And, uh, so, so, so that has some history with me. And Gino was really the first star power um, fisher poet out there. Smithsonian Magazine some years back did an article about about uh, the fisher poets gathering, and they talked a lot about Gino, and they talked a lot about another gentleman, Dave Densmore, uh, who is the one that has the story about the Bering Sea, and also has the story about the uh, loss of his dad and his son. And although Dave isn't as good a poet as 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 Gino is, you know, in terms of prosody and uh, and you know the, the mechanics of poetry, his stories are incredibly compelling, and I think it's very important to emphasize, and I'm definitely going to emphasize that during my lecture, um, that the purpose of these of of this material is not to craft a fine piece of poetry as much as it is to tell a compelling narrative story. Mm. And it's the content and the narrative 
that are the, the really important thing. And the, the, uh, the prosody, you know, the rhyme, the meter, all of that is secondary to that. And the purpose of the prosody and the rhyme and the meter and so on is to advance the narrative. And so sometimes in order to advance the narrative, it'll just kind of change, you mm-hmm. know, which in a way that, say, a, a, a serious literary poet would kind of sniff at. But it advances the it advances the story by doing so, and the, you know there are narratives that you know they have the uh, the uh, introduction and the exposition and the and and the the, the uh, you know the, as, as the the story progresses and then the climax and then the denouement and and uh, they're the best you know really the best of them really do that. Uh, I wonder, um, coming back to this, we talked about the decline in logging uh, poetry at the same time that uh, fishing poetry has has increased. Yes. Um, I wonder why. Why do you think that is? And, and the you know, same problems would, would, uh, would be there, right? Uh, you, you have a theory that uh, logging poetry maybe died out because they have other forms of entertainment. You'd, you'd have the similar forms of entertainment, wouldn't you, on the... On the boats. Yeah, but why but do you think log, uh, fishing poetry has increased? I, I, I attribute that almost entirely to the success of the Astoria Gathering, the fact that that has become a prestigious oh, event uh-huh. in, that, uh, in that particular community. In the same way that uh, cowboy poetry was not a, a very strong tradition before the uh, success of the, uh, of the Cowboy Poetry Gathering, now called the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering, and a bunch of imitators of it. Uh, you know, in, in Elko and elsewhere in the American West. And there are other Fisher Poets gatherings now, too. There's one in Kodiak, Alaska, and uh, there's an all-women's um, Fisher, uh, Fisher Poets gathering held in Port Townsend, Washington. So there are a few in, a few of those. Um, I, I am also under the impression from talking to people that a lot of, quite often, a Fisher poem or a Fisher poet recit- poetry recitation occurs at smaller events, you know, some kind of a family event or a commemorative event. or You know, there are a number of associations, Oregon Seafood Association, Columbia River Gillnetters and so on, and at their meetings and their, their gatherings and so on, you know, one of the, one of the relatively well-known uh, poets in the area who happens to be available in the area will be invited uh, to come and uh, be part of, the, uh, part of the entertainment. But I do attribute it to... And, and the fact that so many younger people have been brought in. Another reason is because um, I think I said that college students and um, school teachers were, had become seasonal fishers mm-hmm. during the, the late 20th century. Uh, those are people who had obviously more education and were familiar with literature and were not so much uh, affected by the, the stigma against, against poetry that you find in uh, I think in in the the working class uh, blue collar world, and so they were they were more comfortable doing it. And then the fact that there were women doing it, so uh, who who didn't have to worry about that particular stigma. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, I attribute it to the uh, <clears throat> to the success of the uh, the Astoria gathering and uh, and the prestige that some of the people I think uh, you know have have attained. Um, I believe it was the Smithsonian Magazine referred to Gino as the the Elvis of the mm. of the poets. Uh, another thing I mentioned that's interesting I think is that perhaps because Banjo Patterson is kind of a national hero in Australia, it's not that unusual for men in Australia in pubs 
to recite uh, either original stuff or stuff out of banjos or other classic repertoires for beers in pubs. And uh, an acquaintance of mine who's a, a, a farmer and a rancher in eastern Washington and also a poet had been in Australia working on uh, combine crews and had experienced that. Now, I've experienced Gino walking into a bar in Chinook, Washington. Uh, I walked in there with him and having somebody say, hey, Gino, let's have some poems. Mm. And then spending the next hour or so reciting and getting uh, getting draft buds in, uh, in payment for the... Uh, <laughs> So it, it does happen. Uh, it does happen uh, in the states too. Although that's the only incident that I particularly I have witnessed. I've been told that it happens other places as well. Mm-hmm. It leads me to my next um, the, the gatherings that you're talking about, and the, the, the instrumentality in in uh, preserving, strengthening fishing uh, poetry. Uh, I've been wondering about tourism, how this fits in. You're involved in early days of Elko. I think you've been involved in other people have asked you to be involved in helping with with tourism or connecting up things with with tourism obviously in astoria gathering that's that's good for astoria right elko gathering it's good for business in in uh, and tourism in in elko how how you connect up these um um you know cultural art forms and and monetize them you know that's that's really what a lot of communities are wanting to do well, I, that's never been my, my business to monetize them. That's been kind of their uh, yeah. either ability or dis, or inability to do so. Uh, they Probably been consulted or talked to, I uh, imagine. But not, not so much about that. No, most of the tourism work that I've done has had little to do with this material. Oh, I see. Most of the tourism-related work uh, I've worked on uh, are um, oh, from about the mid-'90s until the early 2000s. Uh, I worked in... Uh, in Washington and also in Utah, um, on developing highway cultural tours. These are okay. These mm-hmm. are uh, audio tracks that you play. The first ones were cassette, and later ones were CD. And I think some of them have been, you know, available nowadays. I haven't been that involved with them since since they were produced. Some of them you can download as M- as as MP3s, so that as you're driving along a, along the along a highway, you know, like a national scenic highway or or uh, an often traveled route that people um, from out of state would be traveling, uh, there is a series, there is a soundtrack that follows you at about about speed limit, and it has stops and starts so you can catch up or whatever, uh, in which there is a narrator who tells you what you're seeing, and then sporadically, and then all the way through it, there is some local uh Material. It could be music or song or it could be a poem. It could be a story. It could be a reminiscence. It could be the sounds of a workplace with somebody describing what's uh, going on and you're driving past a, an enormous sawmill and you hear the, in, you know, the work of the sawmill and there's somebody talking over, shouting over the noise of the machinery saying, and here's where we do such and such and, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's one of the big tourism uh, that a lot of the tourism work I've done has been that kind of work, mm. like doing the mm-hmm. field work and then putting them together. You know, editing the the um, material down to sort of long long sound bites. Um, if, if you know, coming through a community that has a lot of Latino people. You know, some of the musicians in the area. Uh, there are a lot of people of Scandinavian origin and in uh, Western Washington. So some of that music. Uh, you know, again, performed by local people. 
Um, and then in what I did here in Utah, which was I think in 96, 97, was I put one of those together. I worked on putting, I worked with Carol Edison from the Utah Arts Council oh, yes. mm-hmm. uh, on putting together um, a audio tour of San Pete County. I was just going to mention San Pete County. You yeah, mentioned Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah beginning, mm-hmm. beginning uh, you know, with the San Pete Canyon there after you get off the, the, the highway and, and then taking you all the way down to Gunnison. And as you go through there, there are people who tell stories and sing songs. And there are a few, I think there's a few poems on there too, but local people talking about, reminiscing about the past or telling a funny story or a joke uh, that's related to something local. And, um, yeah, that, that was one that we did here in, uh, in, in Utah. Mm-hmm. Finally, um, I wonder, this gets uh, to what occupational poetry means. Uh, another way, so talking about fishing and logging, the, the, what you've uh, studied and collected, um, another way of asking that is what would be lost if we lost fishing poetry, logging poetry? Well, a lot of it's really entertaining. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the communities themselves, it, it's been, uh, I mean, we've kind of lost, I would say that we have more or less lost logging poetry. And so the sense of identity that comes out of that particular type of storytelling is, is at least that part of it is no longer there. I think that uh, the sense of identity of, of the logging way of life and so on is still pretty strong probably not as strong as it was in the days of logging camps and when loggers really lived separate from the rest of society. You know, most of the loggers that I've met, in, at least in recent years, are family men. You know, they, uh, they've, they've got kids in school and, uh, and wives. Quite often, if they're small contract firms, uh, their wives run the logging business. There are very few women. I've only met one. I've heard of several, but I've only met one woman who actually worked in the woods, and she operated a one of those big pieces of equipment that now puts other log, you know, puts makes it so they don't have to hire so many people. But um, uh, so that's that's kind of already the case, uh, and I suppose it would be the same with uh, with uh, Fisher poetry. And I think the important thing with the, for the Fisher poets and also for the the cowboy poets in Elko, particularly the gathering in Elko, is to make sure that more young people keep coming into it. And I have seen that some in a story. I've seen uh, most of the Fisher poets are of not of a generation younger than me, uh, and most of them are a little bit younger, like maybe ten years. There, there may be people in their uh, in their fifties and early sixties, but then there are also younger ones. There mm-hmm. are also people in their thirties and forties, and and uh, you know we'll we'll just have to see whether that. Um, you know whether that sustains itself because that didn't sustain itself mm-hmm. with uh, with the logger poets. By the way, just a parting shot. Um, are there are there other forms of occupation poetry? We talked about mining in Nevada. Yes. Are there mining poets? There, there are, are definitely other? there are definitely mining poets. There's mm-hmm. a publisher in um, in New Mexico called Cowboy Miner Productions, and this is minor poetry with an e. Uh, they they have published at least one book of just minor poetry and also books of stories of working in the working in, in both underground and in the open mines. Uh, I did some field work <clears throat> for the Idaho Commission on the Arts in the Idaho Panhandle in uh, the 1990s. Uh, so I was in the Silver Valley, you know, the area around Wallace and Kellogg. Um, and definitely I encountered people who were 
who had written poems about their work there. Um, that was an area that had at one time a very strong, uh, was very strongly unionized. And so a lot of their poetry was related to labor rather than related to labor issues rather than to the skills of, of, of mining itself. And uh, that's a whole other, you know, a whole other genre, I'd say, is labor poetry, poetry related to, un, you know, union organizing and strikes and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and loyalty to uh, solidarity with, uh, you know, with other uh, other people in, in the unions. Hmm. Well, very good. We'll leave it there. Out, out of time. Uh, we appreciate you taking time. Thank you. Okay. You're Thank welcome. You very much. You're listening to Access Utah. Thanks for joining me for a conversation with uh, folklorist Jens Lund. He recently gave the 2016 Fife Honor Lecture at USU, presented by the USU Folklore Program and USU Department of English. The uh, Lecture was titled, I'd Done What I Could, Occupational Folk Poetry in the Pacific Northwest. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to revisit a conversation from April of this year with former Utah Poet Laureate and current professor of English at the University of Utah, Catherine Coles. She's a wonderful writer, author of two novels and several volumes of poetry, and her latest, which was published in March, is titled Flight. Catherine Coles directs the Utah Symposium in Science and Literature, She's the recipient of both an Individual Writers' Fellowship and New Forms Project Grant from National Endowment for the Arts. Her poetry collection, The Earth is Not Flat, from 2013, was written under the auspices of National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. She had the chance to travel to the Antarctic. Uh, She's also been working with computer uh, scientists to create tools for visualizing sonic patterns in poetry. We'll revisit our conversation with Catherine Coles tomorrow. And on Thursday, we'll be talking with acclaimed historian H.W. Brands. His new book is The General versus the President, MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of Nuclear War. Of course, most of us know that uh, President Truman famously fired the famous uh, general. And this is the story behind that riveting story of how President Harry Truman and General Douglas MacArthur squared off to decide America's future in the aftermath of World War II. H.W. Brands, General versus the President, that is coming up on Thursday. Uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. On the next Radio Lab, four haunting tales. I look over at the window, and there's this face. The face of the young drowned woman was beautiful. It smiled as though it knew. And I feel that tremor or buzz that something bad's about to happen. Ghost stories. The people who believe win. The skeptics lose. On the next Radio Lab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.